the lack of collaboration that exists between all of the big national networks and the independent practices in terms of sharing best practices. What can we be doing to make them successful? You know, to the extent that the other national networks are successful, to the extent that other independent practices are successful, that's good for me. That's good for Inception. That's good for all of us as an industry. We want to see people be successful. And, you know, we need to focus less on our competition amongst ourselves and more on our customer as our patient. And that can be done through greater collaboration. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today, my guest on Inside Reproductive Health is TJ Farnsworth. TJ has a 20-year history of innovation and successful startups. In 2005, TJ founded Sightline Health which grew to be one of the largest and fastest growing providers of radiation oncology services in the United States. After a two-year journey of infertility, TJ resigned his position as CEO at Sightline on a mission to ensure that patients coming after he and his wife would not have many of the same frustrations that they experienced. TJ also sits on the board of directors of Cure Duchenne, which is a nonprofit dedicated to finding a cure for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. He was named one of Houston's 40 under 40 entrepreneurs in 2011, and he was the 2014 winner of the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year for Healthcare. Mr. Farnsworth, TJ, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you for having me, Griffin. Excited to be here, and sorry it took so long to get this, uh, get this scheduled. I appreciate your persistence. Well, I'm glad that we did because it's an interesting story. I remember seeing in 2014 or 2015, Rebecca Flick from Resolve had sent me a note and said, hey, you should check these guys out. And he was, she was specifically referring to you and your wife and the journey that you went through. And she said something to the effect of these are people that went through the patient experience and decided to build a practice group network from it. And mm -hmm. so let's start a little bit with that story. We don't need to go into the, all of, of the personal details, but I am curious about, you know, there's a lot of different avenues that an entrepreneur can take. I, I guess, tell us enough about the journey to help us understand why you felt that there was something missing in the market and why you felt that you should and could fix it. Yeah. So being an entrepreneur, I, I, I think I came at, come at everything just curious about how things work. I think that's part of what being an entrepreneur is and, and a certain level of curiosity and, and investigative interest and in, in the nuts and bolts of things in particular being a, a healthcare entrepreneur at the time. My wife and I got married later in life. And she was incredibly patient while I was building my last company and very focused on that. And, you know, like a lot of couples, we never even considered the fact that it would be difficult for us to start our family when we wanted to. And we wanted to start our family right after we got married. Both my wife and I always grew up, you know, wanting children, knowing that children were going to be part of our lives. And, you know, we got pregnant on our honeymoon. 
experienced our first pregnancy loss shortly thereafter. And that began the two plus year journey for us of infertility. And we went through all of it. We went through trying to time cycles. We went through IUIs, went through medicated IUIs until finally we you know, pulled the nuclear option, as I'd like to say, and, and went, went to IVF. And we went through our first round of IVF, got pregnant and lost the baby again, went through a second round of IVF, got pregnant, had a heartbeat on the six-week ultrasound, which we were super excited about, and then went for our, you know, graduate, the clinic called the graduation appointment and had lost the heartbeat. And then luckily got pregnant with our third round again, and we have a five-and-a-half-year-old son from it. And it's a really short synopsis of a very long journey and a lot of tears and heartache. And as much as we loved the clinic we were with, we loved the physician we were with, we loved the nurses we were working with, there were a lot of what I would just call service failures, a lot of what I would refer to as just badly run doctor's office things that we would give feedback to them on. I mean, a badly run doctor's office is sort of the the rule, not the exception, <laughs> and not just in our specialty, and in, in, in all specialties, it seems like. And and you know the my my wife and I, like I mentioned both grew up knowing we wanted children and we neither one of us dreamed to ourselves we were going to have our children in some laboratory somewhere and the journey to create your family shouldn't be one where it's it was it was a struggle and it was a struggle not just because of the emotions of what was happening to us on the infertility side of things but it was a struggle and things that could have been easier that just weren't because there there was a focus strictly on outcomes and not really on what was what we were experiencing in the journey to get there. And that was that was interesting to me and it resonated really well with me because of the position I was in before in oncology. Oncology as a specialty learned a long time ago that there's so much you can do about the outcome. There's a lot that you can do about the journey. And so it just sort of sparked a thought in my mind and I, I went to ASRM the year that it was in Honolulu and it rained the entire time. And I went just as an attendee with no new business. I was still the CEO of my last company. And I walked out of that saying, there is no question an opportunity to build a niche within the industry as the business known for building a unique patient experiences and known for top top shelf customer service. I, I suppose we could uh, that subsegment is enough to go into for a long time. But I'm curious. You mentioned there's a there's a few things. Do, you, do any of them come to the top of your head specifically when you said the you felt that the journey was often very outcome focused and there were things operationally that could have been fixed? Do you remember some of those pain points? What were two or three of those that you felt? You know, we can fix yeah, this. Absolutely. I could take up a couple of hours of your podcast talking about that, which I know you don't want, but I'll give you a couple of examples. You know, one of the examples I like to use a lot because uh, it encompasses something that I think is really important for us as a company. There was an instance where you know, we had we had several cancer centers in Los Angeles and myself and one of my senior executives who's now with us at Inception were in the airport at LAX. And luckily, my flight was delayed by three or four hours. And I get this phone call from my wife and she is just crying so uncontrollably that she can't, she can't even, I can't even, she can't even get the words out. And I said, hand the phone to somebody. She hands the phone to somebody who identifies himself as the front desk person at this fertility clinic. And she explains to me that, you know, our balance had not been paid yet. And because of that, she would not release the RX for the trigger shot. That was their policy. And I was flying home to be able to give the tour shot to my wife the following night. And this was actually our third round of IVF. 
And th- this young lady at the front desk was was explaining to me that unless I had called my credit card company in advance, I couldn't give her the number over the phone. It was too large of a charge. And I was trying to explain that, you know, that she should not opine on my relationship with American Express. Let's just try this out and see how it works. And of course, my wife's standing there and there's a line building behind her at the front desk and the, the only hearing one side of the conversation of you haven't paid your bill, your credit card's not going to work, these types of things. And and finally, you know, I, my argument to the to the woman behind the front desk was, let's just or give her the prescription. And if I, we don't pay and come in for the retrieval, then don't do the retrieval. You know, I mean, it's simple, you know, which I understand needing to be paid in full before you do the retrieval. And I've tried to have this discussion and it ends up being a much longer conversation than it needed to be. Finally talked the young lady into running my credit card over the phone and it works. And we all go on our better day. But it's an example of that person behind the front desk of this fertility clinic was not empowered to make the right decision for the patient. And there was a policy that was in place, there was a rule, it wasn't thought through, and the employee as part of this clinic was not trusted and empowered to make the right decision for the patient. And that was a major, what we were, what I would refer to as service failure. I mean, we had other instances where you know, on our second cycle where we got pregnant and had the heartbeat and no heartbeat, we, we, you know, neither one of us thought we were, you know, needing to take the rest of the day off of work. And, you know, I'm standing there trying to be, you know, tough for my wife and, and the stenographer, you know, announces there's no heartbeat without even asking the physician to come in. And like, this is the third time it happened today. And, you know, I had to go find a place that I could cry by myself, not in front of my wife. And that was the men's room because there's very few men in the men's room at the fertility clinic, and just so I could, just so I could, I could, you know, collect myself. Things like that that you know we try to focus on what we can do, knowing we can't be perfect, and knowing that none of these patients envisioned being in our clinic to create or expand their family. Those are things that there there are pieces of things like this that. We can we can improve upon, and there's a lot of things we can't think of, but we can entrust our teams to make the right decisions for. So, so I think what you just shared is evidence to what I speak a lot about on this show, nearly every episode, which has to do with the infrastructure of the practice, and that the average REI practice has inherited at the model of mid 20th century general practitioners practice model. And that's also their business model. And the reason why a lot of people aren't in places to make decisions or to, to change processes or to critically reflect on processes to update them is because there's not that infrastructure from the top where someone's steering the entire ship in a particular direction. And then the people in the right seats to be able to execute against that vision. That's where somebody as a chief executive officer comes in. I think that there are a lot of pros to that. I talk about that. There's also some skepticism about it. But uh, the point that I make is that if someone who is an REI is also in the visionary seat, and then also has to be in a few of those other executive seats, that's just such a daunting time commitment and distraction of focus for what is already a full-time seat. Just being an REI and having that caseload and the procedures and 
then plus all of the things to, to run the business. I imagine, you know, if I tried to run my business and then do 200 retrievals a year and see 400 to 500 patients, there's just no way I could think of the future value and adapt to the operations of the business. So maybe you could talk a bit about the advantages of being in that visionary seat and not being a physician. Then we can explore the counter argument to it. Yeah, I think that the, the advantage, I mean, it, it really does create a great unique relationship between myself and our physician partners. And they get to focus on practicing medicine, but I approach things as a patient. I mean, you know, I approach things maybe a little differently than, than a lot of CEOs would because I come at this from the perspective of being a patient. And so they come at this from the perspective of being the doctor. I come at this from the perspective of being the patient. And, you know, we're able to collaborate and build the best of both worlds. And then we have the infrastructure in place as a management partner with our physician practices where we can execute on that together. And they get to still be doctors through that process. So the counter argument sometimes, and I hear it a lot, which is having someone own the practice or own the group, or it's the concern with private equity coming in is that there are corporate interests and that there are business people that are not physicians making key decisions that affect the standard of care. I hear it a lot. It's been said on this show multiple times. How do you respond to that concern? You know, I think it's important as as business people, we're, we're not making clinical decisions, but I do think that we're naive as business people to think that our clinicians don't have great input for the, for the business decisions being made, and that we're naive to think that the business people don't have great input on decisions being made about the operations of the clinic, not necessarily medical decision making. And, you know, I think, again, you know, I can't speak to you know, the other, well, we'll call, you know, corporate-backed players within our industry. But I do think that I come to this from a unique perspective, being a patient. I, I don't, I'm not coming at this purely from being a CEO who decided to solve an opportunity in a high-growth industry to roll up a bunch of clinics for an exit. This is a personal mission of mine. You know, I, I left a very successful business that I started literally on my kitchen table to start another one on my kitchen table with a ton of risk because I, my wife and I very much believed that, that there was an opportunity for us to create a better type of experience for patients who really should have a positive patient experience. And part of a positive patient experience is a great clinical outcome and grabbing great physician partners, they're the ones that are going to drive that. Both the physician partners and our scientific partners that are, that are back working in the lab as our patients' first babysitters. Let's explore that idea of kitchen table risk, because I think that is a real difference between an entrepreneurial venture and then starting a practice a, a few decades ago because you just wanted to leave the university system. And not that either model is inherently better or worse, but when they're juxtaposed next to one another to serve the patient market, they can certainly play out very differently because one is inheriting that model from the mid 20th century and is likely slower to make decisions, not not necessarily process focused and not necessarily pursuing particular goals where this is now your second major venture 
And, you know, you now you're at the head of one of the largest fertility networks in, in the Western world. And mm-hmm. it didn't exist five years ago. And yeah. so talk about that speed. Yeah, so I think that you know we opened our very first practice from scratch. We didn't want to inherit you know ideas, not that ideas from established practices are bad. We've got some fantastic practices as part of our network that have been around for 20, 25, 30 plus years that bring a ton to the table. But we wanted the opportunity to be able to experiment with things and ask the questions of why are things being done the way they are? And the answer being that's just the way they're done is always a bad answer. There may be a lot of great answers, but that's just the way it's always been done is never a good one. <clears throat> so that allowed us to sort of challenge what we could do and experiment. And then we also have the, we look at it as the best of both worlds. And then we have practices as part of our network that have been around for, you know, with Houston Fertility Specialists in Houston, which was our first acquisition practice. It had been around for 25 plus years, you know, to the Prelude Network with RBA and TSC and NYU. We bring a ton to the table. And the idea that we can bring the knowledge base from all of these places, people that are challenging the norm and saying, why can't we do things differently with de novo development from scratch operations to establish practices that have been doing it in such a way that really does work and does work for a really great reason. And that way we can take the best of all worlds and combine them together. And it's sort of been a unique approach to how we grow the business. It's allowed us to grow into, as you pointed out, you know, one of the largest networks in the world. And we're very proud of that. And mostly we're very proud of the fact that the way it came together, because it came together in such a way that lots of different people bring a lot of really great talents, really great experiences, and really great processes to the table that we can blend to create the best of all worlds. But you can't create those best of both worlds without an entrepreneurial vision and an entrepreneurial spirit at the core of the organization, and especially at that speed, that the gasoline on the fire is entrepreneurial talent. And I often look, if you look at entrepreneurial talent at a scale of zero to 100, and you think of the Warren Buffett and the Bill Gates and Steve Jobs as 100, and then someone like, you know, like my aunts who would never even start their own paper route because of the fear of the risk (laughs) as a zero. You know, in the United States, you can be somewhere at maybe what we might call it a 63 or a 64 and make six figures and do pretty well for yourself because we live in this country at this time. But I think the further you go up the scale towards the 100s is speed is one of the biggest differentiating characteristics. And right now at Fertility Bridge, I'm building it very slowly. Also started from similar to a kitchen table, but doing it much more slow. Haven't got any venture capital, any private equity. There's not even a commercial loan against my business. I sell, I deliver, I hire, sell, deliver, hire. And so it's slow, and but I just need to do it at this speed because uh, it's the learning curve of the entrepreneur. So I need to do it at this speed, and I envision being a much faster entrepreneur within the coming decades. But you came in, and within you went to that rainy ASRM in Honolulu, and then now and you, you start some de novo clinics. You get some background to be able to do that, and then you buy another group and then you merge with another one. And so just talk about 
that because that could seem really risky to a lot of people. Yeah, and, and listen, I'm sure there's a certain degree of I think I think that my entrepreneurial spirit is certainly a, a blend of stupidity along with the belief that it it could be done. I mean, I, I was raised by an entrepreneur. My mother has started seven venture-backed businesses, private equity-backed businesses from scratch since back in the 70s. And so I watched her do that growing up. And so the risk, and it, you know, it's there. Started my last company, I was single and had not yet met my wife and thought to myself, look, if this doesn't work, I'll fall bankruptcy. <laughs> and it's just me <clears throat> now having two children and a wife that's a little different, little less, little, little, little different risk profile. But having done it already once makes it a little bit less risky to me because I have the experience and I, ha- and I know how to do it. And it's also caused me to move faster with Inception than I did with my last company because, you know, because I know how to do it. And to your point about how you're building your business, as you get more and more experience with it, you'll build it faster and faster and faster. That's just the nature of things. And so I certainly think that, you know, having an entrepreneur as the CEO isn't always the case. I mean, sometimes some of these businesses are roll-ups by private equity firms that plug in, you know, hired gun CEOs. You know, before private equity was ever involved with Inception, I had started this from, like I said, my kitchen table and was building it myself and taking a risk myself. And so I think it gave me a certain level of understanding of the business from day one that is unique, but not necessarily better or worse than where other comes, others come from, just unique from where it comes from. But you're no question that, that there are different levels of risk tolerance as entrepreneurs, and I'm probably... Uh, a little more immune to that because of number one, my background having it done before, done it before, and number two, having watched it be done growing up as much as I did. Do you want your IVF lab to be at capacity? Do you want one or more of your docs to be busier? Do you want to see more patients at your satellite office before you decide to close the doors on it? But private equity firms are buying up and opening large practice groups across the country and near you. Tech companies are reaching your patients first and selling your own patients back to you. And patients are coming in with more information from the internet and from social media than ever before, for good or for bad, and you need a plan. A fertility marketing system is not just buying some Google ads here or doing a couple of Facebook posts here. It's a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a proven treatment plan. Just getting price quotes for a website, for a video, or for SEO, that's like paying for ICSI or donor egg ad hoc without doing testing, without a protocol, and without any consideration of what else might be needed. The first step of building a fertility marketing system is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's the cornerstone on what your entire strategy is built. You don't have to, but it is best to do that before you hire a new marketing person person before you put out an RFP or look for services before you get your house in order because by definition this is what gets your team in alignment. Fertility Bridge can help you with that. It is better to have a third party do this. We've done it for IVF centers from all over the world and we only serve businesses who serve the fertility field. It's such an easy way to try us out. It's such a measured way to get your practice leadership aligned and it's a proven process to begin your marketing system. Without it, Practices spend marketing dollars aimlessly and they stress their teams and they even lose patience and market share. Amidst these changes that are happening across our field and across society, if you're serious about growing or even maintaining your practice, sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's at fertilitybridge.com or linked here in the show notes. There is no downside to doing this for your practice, only upside. Now, back to Inside Reproductive Health. We could call it risk on one hand if we're being more skeptical. If we're being more bullish on the value of entrepreneurship, we could call it 
a tendency to view things as an investment. And I think, and you're simply assessing if any particular initiative is going to return the investment towards the objective in a way that's effective and, and valuable enough. And I think the tendency of any specialist who essentially forms a business by accident, and this doesn't necess- this doesn't have to mean fertility or even healthcare practices. It can mean any specialist who is good at their particular field and simply forms a business or a practice and means of providing that service versus an entrepreneur who's creating an organization is that the former tends to look at things almost always as an expense. And the latter, the entrepreneur looks at it, it's an investment and it either is likely to return on the investment or it's less likely. And so they make those decisions much more quickly because they have an objective in mind. And for you, I know a lot of your team and I knew a lot of them before, knew almost all of them before they worked for you. And you know, I haven't really gotten a chance to powwow with them, but I see them on LinkedIn and they seem pretty, at least from a, a bird's eye distant view, it seems, it seems like they feel supported. And so can you talk about that as an entrepreneur is like, you know, when you're investing in people, some of whom come with a big price tag or you're investing in initiatives. And I've also talked to people that you've hired and they've said, yeah, like he, like he, he's letting me take this initiative. He's letting me do this and talk about that tendency. Whereas if someone's just a risk averse and having and looking at everything as an expense, Things don't get built that way. Yeah, I think that the most valuable asset that we have sitting on our balance sheet as as inception is our is the people. It's the what I'll call the human capital, and and a lot of that's culture. And so, you know, for me, I'm very proud of the fact that I have you know, several members of senior management over here that followed me, all the way down to people in the accounting department followed me from my last company because of the culture that we build and it's you know we all work a lot of hours and we should all enjoy what we do and we enjoy what we work with and part of that comes from if i'm going to make you accountable for something i'm also going to make you responsible for it i'm going to empower you to execute on it you're going to be responsible for the decisions that are made on it and you'll be you know held responsible for that and some people love that and some people don't but those that thrive in my organization love that and i think that there's no question that we as an organization and, you know, senior management is there to serve the rest of the organization. My job is to give the tools necessary to my management team, and I expect them to give the tools necessary to their clinics and their operations below them to make them successful. And that's how the organization becomes successful. And I think that is a critical cultural development that is necessary for success, at least necessary for success in the way that I see it. You know, everyone, you know, I, I'm not here to say that my way is the best way or, you know, like there's, I like to say all the time, there's 10 ways of doing things. One way is my way, one way is wrong. And there's eight other right ways of doing things. This is just, you know, my way of doing things is building a, a as positive of a culture as possible and a culture of responsibility and accountability across the network. And once you've done that, you've got a team of people and a team of talent that is by far the most valuable thing that you have. And there's no question that that's what we have. So how do you maintain that culture when you're bringing on different groups or different practices that in 
very different parts of the country. They may have very different teams. One thing that I love about building the culture of my company is that thus far it's all homegrown and Griffin's right. at the top. So I dictate what the culture is and get to make those personnel decisions if it's not a good fit or if it is. And now you're you're bringing on other groups and other teams. And don't give me the politically correct answer because I know they're good practices, but I don't care how freaking good a practice is. There's going to be people that are not a good fit that probably weren't a good fit for the old version, much less the new, more cohesive thing that you're building. So how do you do that? Well, I think that what, what I just said, you know, a culture of responsibility and accountability is not for everyone. And we all know that person that's part of their office or practice that doesn't take responsibility for things, not accountable for things, passes off decisions on others. Those are, those are people who are never going to thrive in an environment like ours. I'm not here to say we fold someone into the inception family of businesses and every single person fits in perfectly and they fit the culture. That's just not the case, but they will adapt to the culture that we've built or they will not survive. And that, but there's no question that on the whole, at least so far in this experience, we have found more talent that we want to retain than that talent that we don't. But I'm not going to give you the politically correct answer that everyone we, everyone we meet as part of the practices that become part of the Prelude Network or any of the, any of the enterprises as part of the Inception family of companies that we say all of them are going to be a good fit. They're just not. And a lot of people will be much more successful in a different organization. And it's the right decision for them and for you to put them in a place where they can go find the right organization that's a good fit for them and their style. But it is certainly a challenge when you're doing de novo and growth from scratch. You know, maintaining that culture is it's simpler and you're doing a lot of M&A work, you have to pay attention to that culture. And, you know, as long as you're paying attention to it and it's top of mind and it's being driven by everyone in senior management, it can be done. For many people, those decisions get difficult when the person might be a good fit at their particular role, but they're not a good fit for the culture. And those things are not mutually inclusive, meaning if you're good at one, that does not mean that you're great at right. the other. And you could have someone in billing that they know that they know every code, they know how to get every dime from the insurance company. They know exactly how the billing and reimbursement process in and out, but they might make their coworkers miserable or they might be undermining the culture that's coming from the top. How do you make those distinctions of, you know what, this person is really good in this seat and this particular seat, it's going to take us three months to find somebody. Should we just leave I, them there I, for another six months? Uh, Gr Griffin, I can teach somebody all about billing and coding or accounting. I can't teach them to be a positive influence in the office. And I can't teach them to be a reliable and trustworthy coworker to the teams that they're around. It's the difference between hiring, what I, what I say hiring for talent and hiring for skill. I can teach you skill. I can't teach you talent. And so if, if their talents don't fit our culture, then they're not going to be the right, a good fit, whether, no matter what their skills are. Where do you see this all leading to? I mean, as an entrepreneur, you've got a vision and I would have to guess that a practice network is only part of it. Where else do you see that either Prelude Inception or TJ Farnsworth as an entrepreneur. Yeah, when we, when we started in space. 
Yeah, when we started this business, you know, my wife and I, we started it with the idea of creating a family of businesses all focused on the patient's experience. And the Prelude Network, that takes some time, but we've got, we start, we're starting with a very good platform between, you know, Spire is now part of the Prelude Network. The Prelude Network is that we refer to as our network of fertility clinics that are really focused on this patient experience concept. And then, you know, we have My Egg Bank and we've got other verticals coming as part of the inception family of businesses that will all have one unifying trait, and that is they're focused on that patient experience. We want to be seen within the industry, our identity within the industry for patients, for clinicians, for looking for people looking for what teams they want to join, that we are the patient experience people. And that's the mission that we're on. And certainly there's no question that there's more coming from us. But you can, it won't take you very long to imagine what other verticals that touches a patient that we would see a patient experience get improved upon. But the Prelude Network, which is the core of what we do uh, in our clinics, is what drives all of that. So there's certainly more to come. I, I'd love to stand here and lay out our business plan for you, although I'll probably get a phone call from our board, so I can't do that. But at the same time, what I can say is it'll all be core focused on expanding the service lines that we can provide to create an integrated network of fertility companies that are all focused on that patient experience. More broadly, then, what verticals are you paying attention to now? Mobile care, artificial intelligence? Are there a couple that you're just paying attention yeah. to in our field? We've already been involved with mobile care. You know, first iteration of our own patient communication tool set, which was previously in the first iteration known as Aspire Connect. And the, the second generation, Prelude Connect, will be out in the next couple of weeks, which is our own app. That's our way in which we communicate with our patients who are going through their fertility journeys within our clinics in a way that is seamless, that is 21st century, that is not a nurse leaving phone voicemails for you back and forth, but it's just not how our patients want to be communicated with and are used to being communicated with. There's no question that we're paying attention to AI. Genetics has been a, has been a long time. You know, a couple of years ago, we would say that was the next frontier of our industry. Well, we're already there. I think that the second biggest pain point for patients when it comes to a customer service, patient experience perspective of things is pharmacy. There's things like that that we're paying attention to. We're obviously paying attention to technological developments within the market, things that are on the cutting edge that are several years away, but things that'll do things that we believe will drive down the cost of care to our patients and make things more accessible and make things a better patient experience for them. And we're paying attention to all of that because with a with a network of our size, we can influence some of that and affect how fast it can or can't come to market. What are the biggest challenges facing both you all in the field right now? You know, I think that the challenges facing us as a company, you know, we have a lot of integration work to be done. You know, as you pointed out, Inception as a company, you knew about us three or four years ago, but I would say that most of your listeners probably didn't. Now, most of them probably do. And so I think that there's a lot of work to be done there and putting in businesses together like this and not paying attention to the integration work that needs to be done is a recipe for damaging and destroying the culture. And that is the critical component to creating what it is we're trying to do, which is this patient experience focused environment and culture. And I think that as an industry, I think we're facing a ton of pressure from the outside. I mean, there's a lot of a lack of understanding of what regulatory influences do exist within our industry. I mean, we're, it seems like every few months I got a, I got an email from a cousin or an aunt asking me, do you own this clinic that this disaster is happening at that's all over CNN? And you'll see that you know the soundbite is that we are 
a bunch of cowboys that, with a bunch of physicians who are, were operating in an unregulated environment. Which so funny that you bring products. this up, and I'm interrupting because my creative director texted me this morning and she said, have you all seen this? And then there's a drama about, it's, it's, so it's not a documentary, it's a drama show, and I'm not sure how many episodes the network has booked or if it's just the pilot, but sounds like it's going to premiere on Fox and it's about adult children that are meeting together of that were that are all the biological offspring of a fertility doctor who used his own sperm in yeah. in the lab. Not a not a sperm yeah. donor, but but a rogue fertility yeah. doctor who yeah, is like, oh great. <laughs> Hey, this is great. Yeah. That's what we. This for... is what we need. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, this is what we need. And you know, I think that I had not heard that specifically. I heard that there was a fictional drama coming out. I hadn't heard some of those details, but that and that, those are the things. I mean, those are the things that we're we're, we're going to be faced with having to answer questions about. That you know, you know, if you, and you when you watch the news talk about some of these stories and the level of inaccuracies that they speak with, it's a challenge for us to be educating those who are not within our industry about the regulation that does exist, the how serious we as an industry take the safety of our patients and the security of the way we do things. And I think we're going to face increased pressure for, you know, to, to change things. And I'm not sure that those changes, we as an industry can either be driving those changes and helping ensure that they're done in a way that actually makes sense and don't increase costs for patients, because that's one of the things that is a real concern when you start layering on additional regulation. This is already a lot of, we have an access problem in this country when it comes to fertility and the cost of providing services. And we're constantly looking for ways in which we can be providing the high level of care that we want to be providing to our patients and doing it for a lower cost. And the more and more regulation you add on there uh, that is done wrong, it can be done in a way that seriously increases costs and decreases access to patients. If it's done right and we engage in it in a, in a healthy and constructive way rather than just try and resist it, I think that that's going to be a real question for us as an industry over the next couple of years. Is the mid-sized or small independently owned REI practice going away? No, absolutely not. I think there's always certain physicians who are much better off and can be very successful in operating an independent practice, being a part of a network of ours isn't for everybody. And it's imp- it's incumbent upon us as we talk to, to practice who want to be part of our network and those who those who evaluate that to make that assessment, honestly. And the good news is this is a very underserved, you know, the, the, the patient population in the United States is very underserved. There's a lot of opportunity for all of us. This isn't the question of whether or not an independent practice can survive as everybody has to join a national network like Prelude under inception, or is this a, or can they live independently or is, is academic medicine their only other option? <clears throat> I think there's no question that there is opportunity for them and there will continue to be opportunity for them. TJ, whether it's about entrepreneurship in medicine or whether it's about advancing the field, how would you like to conclude with our audience? Yeah, I think that as a field, you know, thinking about how to advance the field, I'd love to see a whole lot more collaboration within our industry. You know, I think that coming out of a different specialty, I am surprised at all at every turn at how the lack of collaboration that exists between all of the big national networks and the independent practices in terms of sharing best practices. What can we be doing to make them successful? 
you know, to the extent that the other national networks are successful, to the extent that other independent practices are successful, that's good for me. That's good for Inception. That's good for all of us as an industry. We want to see people be successful. And, you know, we need to focus less on our competition amongst ourselves and more on our customer as our patient. And that can be done through greater collaboration. Among comparing the that to oncology, and the do you feel people. that that's... Comparing that to oncology, do you feel that there's less in the fertility field? There's considerably less in the fertility field, yeah. I think that, and maybe it's because the oncology specialty is united behind this concept that you're fighting cancer, or it's a long time ago, the, the determination that you know, the reality is, is that, you know, Mayo Clinic and Indy Anderson are not doing things really that differently. And that they can be a whole lot more successful by collaborating with one another, even though they are competitors. I don't know what drives that, but I definitely feel like they're within that, that sort of specialty, there's a whole lot more collaboration and not just amongst clinicians. This is, I'm, I, this is a criticism I have of myself and of the, of the business side of things, you know, and this is something that dialogue should be started and will be started soon. There should be a greater degree of collaboration existing between all of the, you know, administrators and business people within the system, because there, there are all kinds of things you could be doing together to affect you know, legislation, reimbursement, sharing business best practices, and doing things to elevate and accelerate our industry in a way that works together that increases the chances of all of us being successful. I just got back from a digital mastermind meeting, the group that I belong to of other digital agency owners, and who should be more cutthroat with each other than Mm -hmm. internet marketers. But I've been a part of this group for, this was my fourth meeting. We do it every year. And we also have a Slack channel that we contribute Mm -hmm. to different topics and we talk with each other and we open up about fricking everything, how we build clients, the type of pricing models that we use, what services we're offering, how we structure our account management, project management deliverables, what project management software we're using. But sometimes people open up their books. It is about as transparent as can be with people who theoretically could be cutthroat competitors. And we just advance so much that it, it, and perhaps it's because our field is so much bigger that by, I mean, there's literally thousands of agencies. So having 40 people in the room, we don't have to look at each other's competitors, but I do see this opportunity and I'd see a resistance to it. And I, it might be fear-based that some thinks that somebody else is going to take this special sauce. But I think in, in many cases, people don't have anything to lose. And when I was at this meeting, I was thinking, I've had this thought several times that I should get this together with different independent practice owners because I'm in a position to do that. Maybe even just getting 10 in a room doing something similar. And the reason I haven't done that yet is because I made the assumption for them that they wouldn't. And so I'm testing it now. And I've I've just reached out to a, a couple of people on the plane ride home yesterday that seem interested in doing so. But I completely agree with you that there's a, the opportunity to, yeah, yeah, to I, have more I, collaboration. I, I, Griffin, you can count on me being at that meeting. So, you know, in ecology, in the you know, industry, by industry, I just existed for me before diagnostic imaging, even though I wasn't an entrepreneur in the space, I was just an executive. You know, the same kind of thing. When we opened a cancer center in a new marketplace, the competing cancer centers in the marketplace would come down and introduce themselves. The staffs would bring over, you know, gifts. If you needed some piece of supply, some clinical thing that you were, it was on, that you were having to wait for, people would loan things to you. 
that does not exist in this industry. <laughs> so, you know, just there's a level of collaborativeness that's missing here. I think I'm not a clinician, but I, I certainly have heard from other clinicians that they feel that exists, but certainly from the, the business people being one of them. And I'm, I can only say that I'm being critical of myself as well here because I haven't done anything about it either. We could be doing more to collaborate with one another to help each other because frankly the rising tide lifts all boats well so if you heard that if you see tj at asrm or at another meeting pop over and say hi he's a nice guy he's not gonna bite tj farnsworth thank you very much for all your insight and coming on inside reproductive health thanks for having me griffin you've been listening to the inside reproductive health podcast with griffin jones If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.